Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have these guys here in studio. Morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. And Brian. Morning, Brad. Philip. Hey, Brad. Bob. Good morning. Happy to have you guys here. And as always, we've got several good topics to talk about. And if you're interested in emailing us, if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, you can email us at bci at ksu.edu, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at the underscore BCI. And give us your topic idea if you have something you'd like us to talk about. Today, we're going to talk about a question Dustin had about how to how do you manage rising input costs, something all of us are dealing with, as well as address rotational grazing. What are some of the considerations for different regions of the country? And we're going to wrap up talking bull and cow safety. Before we get into that topic, guys, I know you you all have kids that are playing sports. We're doing summer sports, different areas. Summertime, going and watching sporting events, one of the fun things to do while you're sitting in the stands is eating and snacking. So I want to know, what's your favorite snack if you're watching baseball, softball, some of the mm-hmm. summertime sport events? Well, I mean, an easy go-to is, is popcorn. That's usually available, and we like it. That you know, that one's pretty common, although sunflower seeds is kind of another one that we would do. And, and of course, you got to have a, a cold beverage you know a, a coke or lemonade or something Dustin probably depends on how hot it is but I would say popcorn's always a kind of a go-to for me and then some Gatorade or something oh I've been coaching this summer and we've always got a couple bags of sunflower seeds in the dugout teaching the boys how to spit yeah that's a good thing yeah them learning and they're really that's not an innate skill that is a learned skill you're yeah. not born with the ability to do that well right yeah I I don't know. I've tried to quit snacking at baseball games because I spend so much time there. Anymore, it's just gum and Gatorade for me. So he just eats veg- like carrots and yeah, vegetables. Yeah, yeah. You, you bring along like your pre-prepared carrots and veggies? Uh, sometimes actually. Yeah, yeah. He's embarrassing. Yeah, we bring, but we've got we got the sunflower seeds. But the sunflower seeds now you don't just grab a bag of sunflower seeds. You get all the different flavors and all the different types. And I'll tell you, there are some good ones, and there are some that are not good at all. Mm-hmm. So try them at your own risk. So hopefully everybody's enjoying your summer and getting a chance to sit back and, and watch some of those baseball games. One of the things that we were going to talk about, and Dustin, you mentioned you had a question, and, and I think this is one that we all think about, is even driving back and forth to those baseball games, the cost of fuel is up, the cost of feed is up, everything has gone up in price. So if you were talking to, let's say, a cow-calf producer, what are some of the things you'd think about? How do you manage those rising input costs? Well, I think that's a pretty broad question because there's a lot of different areas I think you could take it. As an example, if you're thinking for me from a price uh, inputs, you could participate in some kind of you know futures options market would be one example of trying to reduce maybe some of that price risk. Other examples that I, I, I mentioned were thinking about possibly rotational grazing. I said that as an option as well. Again, there's other issues that come up, right? Do you have the labor? I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about there. Minimizing waste, feed waste, you know, 70% of, you know, your variable costs are related to feed expenses. So are there any ways you can try to minimize uh, the waste? Other examples, you know, if you know prices are going to go up and maybe you have the cash available, can you pre, pre-purchase your uh, inputs? Uh, maybe pay with cash. You might get a discount. I think we saw that back in 2020 with a lot of folks here in Kansas. And so those are just a couple of examples. I'm sure you guys got... But there's no one easy answer right, that everyone should just immediately go do tomorrow. And that's the problem is there's so many different things. Every operation is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and so I think there's just probably a lot of different things one could 
could do or think about doing? Well, I think I think it's a time to also give thought to are there substitutes or alternatives to the way that I currently do things, right? In, in the easy example, you, you go to the grocery store, maybe I'm not buying the same name brand thing that I was before, so I go for a substitute. Or maybe I say, instead of that, I'm going to get this as an alternative. And, and that's an easy example for the grocery store. I think there are some on the, on the cow-calf side where you think about what are some of the things that I could either substitute or have alternatives. Hay is, a big, is going to be a big cost. We know that's a big input cost. And it's going to cost, I mean, however the season goes, rain-wise, it's going to cost more to make this year because fuel prices are higher. Yeah, I think, you know, it almost sounds to me, listening to Dustin, I could, I could kind of feel that he's a little frustrated that, well, if it was easy to manage rising costs, it would be easy. And so it's almost back to some of the things that we, we know to do. So more efficiency, um, identify maybe cows that aren't as efficient or activities that aren't as efficient, and really kind of rethink them. The other thing is, you know, when, when you start trading, so my cost of labor in relationship to the price of things I have to buy now, I might, I might have to actually just spend more of my sweat and use less input of more expensive. I would like to think that, that my sweat would be something that I'm, I'm easily uh, substituting as something mechanical. But nowadays, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's go back to rethinking how we use all of our resources, including our labor, and maybe my labor is less expensive in comparison to fuel than it used to be. Yeah, and I was, when Dustin said labor, I start to think a little bit about technology and things like that. And so, you know, are there, you know, one of the things that might might change for, especially with fuel costs is, you know, instead of driving a pasture to check cows, are we going to purchase cheap drone and check cows from the house, right? I mean, think, I, I just think it, when it's when things are going up in cost as rapidly as they are right now, you really have to kind of be open to any change or suggestion. Bob has been looking for any excuse to buy a drone. Absolutely. I know he has. Absolutely. I know he has. Because <laughs> so, so honestly, the first thing that I thought of was, well, send the kids out to walk the pasture and don't let them drive the truck out there. That was easy, but the, right. the drone idea, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. So Dustin mentioned feed costs being one of the major expenses, and that's always kind of what comes to my mind first. And I think the thing that we need to think about, or some things to think about, are how can you extend your forage resources? That grazed forage is the cheapest thing you've got, and how can you make that last longer so you can reduce the amount of purchased feed? And then managing nutrition requirements of the cows. You know, if you need to sort off a few that are a little thinner, and instead of feeding the whole herd, feed them separate making sure that you're strategically supplementing where you need to supplement and not just supplementing when cows don't really need it. Those types of things to really focus on when and where those cows need extra nutrition. Well, you know, and I, I think of, when you think about extending the grazing season, you're getting more productivity of the land. Some, some of the basics of, you know, weed control, brush control, uh, you know, making sure that my land is producing grass and not cedar trees or weeds or something else that isn't grazable yeah that's true but those are going to be advantages a couple years down the road you're not going to see a boost in forage production this year by going by cutting out cedar trees yeah those need to be done for the long term but that's not going to be an immediate fix i think one thing is we can try to do is reduce the number of cows or you know and i'm sure rob's got a spreadsheet for this that i haven't seen yet but in my mind there's optimum between docking rate and and um, productivity per acre and productivity per cow and so you don't want to be too far one way or the other and finding that can can improve your efficiency of your whole operation and i might take it the other way is 
So you, you guys are, everything so far has been, okay, inputs are higher, inputs are higher. I got to figure out ways to cut costs, save money. And I even said substitutes or alternatives. The other side of the equation is, is there a way that I could manage? And, and Dustin, as you think about it, is there a way that I could manage maybe my income? So my inputs are higher, yes. But what can I do to increase my income and productivity to maybe offset some of that? So ways to think about income, uh, maybe you participate in some kind of risk management from an output side now, right? You try to lock in some kind of output price for your calves. Maybe you could participate in some kind of insurance programs or various insurance programs available for the forage side, but also the livestock side. So that might be a couple ways to think about possibly trying to help on the revenue side or maybe marketing at different times if, if that's even possible or feasible. Yeah, I, th I think at least worth looking at, right? So not just the, because a lot of times you say inputs are high, how do I manage costs? But also because we're running a business, we also need to look at how do we manage that income? So maybe you, you don't want to decrease your input costs so much that you start harming productivity. Yeah, or even or, look at alternative ways to, are there alternative marketing mechanisms that I could go through that would bring more income back or different market timing, right? Maybe I keep the calves at home for a little bit longer, they're a little bit bigger. If it's cost efficient to do, I, I guess this would be a point to just get out your pencil or Bob's spreadsheet and make a comparison. Excellent. So one of the things you talked about, Philip, was how to extend that grazing season rotational grazing is one of those tools and i wanted to talk a little bit about it just specifically because it varies greatly by region of the country it varies by grass type and it varies by operation and their goals but in broad terms maybe just give me your definition of what is rotational grazing well there's lots of definitions of rotational grazing and and when we first started talking about this quite a few years ago, it was that term fit very well because it was, okay, I'm going to rotate cows or calves around a certain number of pastures in the same order on the same number of days all season long. But what we've learned is that a better management technique is to adjust the rotation based on the regrowth of the forage. So you may not be going back to the same order of pastures every time. You may not be rotating on the same schedule every time. And so that you're adjusting that rotation based on the forage's response to the current growing conditions and, and grazing pressure. And so what that does is it gives us a better, or sorry, gives us, gives the forage a better opportunity to regrow, maintain uh, root health, and be more productive over the long term. Well, another term that I've used or that I've heard people use is management intensive grazing because what you just described involves a lot of management. It involves actually getting out and walking those pastures, really looking at plant growth and deciding and making a different decision each week or day when to move cattle and, and which cattle to move. And so it is management intensive. It's not just open the gate, turn them out and forget about it, which for some people that, I mean, that really fits their personality. It fits, I mean, they consider themselves grass farmers and they are really in tune to forage productivity and that works really well for them uh, but it's not for everybody or for some people that management intensiveness is no problem for other people that would be a big impediment either because of time other priorities of my time or just my interest so what do you say to me if i'm going yeah kind of but before we get to that can you kind of talk about what like what would you look for because then i think that'll lead into like, how does that fit your person? Like if I were, are we talking about walking 
you know, 50 feet of my pasture and just looking at the grass or is it actually sampling grass or, you know, how, what do you, what would you look for, Philip? Well, so I was just going to say it's Bob's comment that that personality type and fits in here, it's, it's very subjective or you, it's a, it's a learned skill to be able to evaluate that pasture grass. It's whereas when we, we talked about, you know, rotating pastures a certain order on a certain schedule, anybody could do that. You just put it on the calendar and you go do it. But this requires going out there and evaluating grass. And so one of the things that we want to look for is don't let that grass get too mature, okay? And so, but don't graze it down too short. So that's where your your judgment comes into play. And so some of the things you might look for are seed heads coming up and and things like that. And it might you know is it is it starting to get really tall, really stemmy, um, those kind of things. Then I've let it go too long and I haven't come back and grazed that soon enough if i graze it down past you can look up or you can talk to your county extension agent and there are recommendations for stubble height of how much residue you're leaving for different forage species have i grazed it down past that which means there's not as much leaf area left out there for the plant to recover quickly and so some of that it becomes it's a judgment and subjective and just something you have to learn over time from kind of the trial and error you can learn from other people but it does re- require some trial and error on your part well another thing and i think you've mentioned this before is a lot of the, the early work looking at rotational grazing or management intensive grazing was done with some cool season grasses and there's also been some work in in range forages so more in the western united states but Management intensive grazing or managed grazing looks different on warm season grass or range grasses and cool season grasses, right? I mean, you're the nutritionist. And because, yeah, and we don't know exactly why, if it's the forage species, if it's the environment, the, you know, the weather, rainfall, soil types, whatever, but you don't quite see the same benefits on those native range grasses as you do on cool season grasses and so it's a little different approach it it is beneficial in certain areas in certain situations because you give that forage the ability to regrow and maintain its uh, root reserves and give it a break basically give it rest um, especially like if you think about areas around loafing areas water those kind of things that those areas gets grazed hard all the time and so giving that those areas uh, rest where you can shift that grazing pressure to a different area of the pasture for you know certain periods of time by moving water, moving mineral, putting up fences, whatever, to try to get those cattle to, to graze different areas and give certain areas a break. So I, I think that's one of the differences, too, is in some of the range pastures, there are multiple species of grass. They have a lot of diversity. There are some pastures that may be close to a monoculture. So you have a single type of grass there, which is different. And cows are preferential. We've talked about that before. They'll go in, but they're not super efficient. And it is not their job to go to the far corner of the pasture and graze that if there's no reason for them to get there. And that's one of the things that you can do with some of that management grazing is figure out how do I get them to graze, not just when I want them to graze, which is what we've been talking about, but also where I want them to graze at those different times. It becomes a real challenge and the fence becomes a challenge as well as water. 
And, and how, do you, how do you handle those obstacles in, in some of the bigger areas? you got to look at your operation and think about how you can do it efficiently and effectively for your operation. In some places, it's very difficult because water is the number one thing. Cattle are only going to travel so far away from water to graze. Now, it seems that cattle can learn to travel different distances. If you look at data from the eastern part of the U.S., they, they say cattle won't travel more than, say, you know, 800 or thousand feet from water but you western u.s cattle travel miles from water to to eat graze so i think it's something that cattle can learn but they're still only going to travel a certain distance as unless there is nothing to eat and then they will travel far enough to find something to eat well and i think that's a a good point that it's going to vary it's going to vary by region of the country so one of the other things that we wanted to talk about today, and I'm going to shift topics to, because I think this is a really important one, and this time of year, the cattle are out grazing, but occasionally we'll have one that's not doing well, or we need to get them back up, whether it's a bull or a cow, and safety, especially when I'm out in the pasture and trying to get one up so I can treat it, is a big concern. What what thoughts do you guys have? How do I make sure that's a safe environment? Brian? Probably the biggest thing to think about, and probably a little bit counter to what we talked about with costs is having good facilities, right? You have to have facilities. And I've seen rarely facilities that are overbuilt. It's possible, but usually not. And so, you know, think about, you know, if you, if you've built facilities to handle cows and now you've got to bring a bull in to treat him for something or in maybe in the fall we're talking about fall processing you know make sure those facilities are are built sturdy enough for him to uh, make sure they're kept up too so this is a good time and, and that's one of those things you know most most ranchers that i know or farmers that i know they're pretty handy so you know facility upkeep you know if it's broken fix it if it's bent straighten it out whatever it is but make sure that they're in proper working order and and if you've got to shoot maintain it right so oil it make sure it works right again probably most shoots will handle bulls and cows with a little bit of adjustment so just make sure it's adjusted to whatever you're planning to bring on through for that occasion yeah i think brian's thinking the same way i am and that when you think about the middle of the summer i'm not likely to be processing cows or something like that but i might have to go get a bull you know maybe need to take a bull out of a pasture to put another one in or maybe he's got foot rot or something like that and and i i have experienced and i've seen some situations that didn't go well from a a human safety standpoint, even an animal safety standpoint. And a lot of times it had to do with not, not ideal facilities and, or just not, maybe not having enough, like, so I'll speak for myself, say, you know, an older guy, I need to get a bull in. I'm in a hurry. I probably should go get more help. I should go get some good help. And I don't. And so that's when people can get into trouble. So I, I think a couple of things are good facilities. The other is enough and the right kind of help. Well, and I, I'll follow on to that because we had, when it stormed here a while back, one of our bulls got, or a bull got out and he's out and we're trying to get him back in. You have to have enough people. You have to have, and in that case, there's no facilities, right? Facilities are out of the equation. If he's, if he's out, the thing that I think is helpful is you, you've got some patience, Right. So you're able to say, we're not going to rush this process. We're going to try to get him in, but we're not going to try to crowd and make the situation worse because it's easy to escalate things when you want them to de-escalate. The other, the other thing, Brian, and you mentioned it too, is how, how used to people or four-wheelers or horses are the animals may, may also make a difference. Yeah. And, and I, I'll go back and reiterate what you said, because Bob said the key word, he's in a hurry, right? 
and that that's not a good situation. And I know I know people are busy, but it's just one of those things. And especially when you're alone, you, you just you've got to that animal outweighs you by ten times, and you're let they're going to have to dictate the pace today probably, and maybe something else doesn't get done. But I'm sorry, you asked about equipment and familiarity with the, the surroundings and things. And that, and that's absolutely true, right? So the more familiar animals are with their surroundings, the more comfortable they will be. So, I, you know, and it's not uncommon in some situations, we've got animals that are new to a facility, people will run them through the facility, not touch them, just walk them through it, let them get used to that surrounding. So animal handling will get you a long way. And so some of the low stress techniques that are out there, I think are really helpful because it settles the animal down, right? So if you've got an animal, even an animal with a good disposition, when they are unfamiliar and scared, will do unpredictable things. And so that that's the one that will help you a little bit but too. familiarity alleviates stress. Mm-hmm. So yep. if, you, if you're going to get them up on a four-wheeler, then probably that shouldn't be the only time they see a four-wheeler or a horse or a person on foot. And I've seen animals, they haven't ever seen somebody on foot and they're like, what the heck is that thing? I mean, it doesn't have to be a loud engine noise. It could be that they're used to seeing people horseback or they're used to seeing people on a four-wheeler. So however you plan on working them, being around them, give them some of that exposure before and that familiarity will help de-escalate the situation. And we appreciate your thoughts on that topic and I think it's important that we think about bull and cow safety all the time, not just when we're out trying to get one up, but how are we planning for it? I think Brian had some good input there as well as did Bob. And Philip, appreciate your discussion on rotational grazing. And Dustin mentioned some good tools and techniques to kind of manage those rising input costs. As always, we appreciate questions from you. So if you'd like to send us a question or send us even a topic you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. 